In a specific case I read about, they were looking at the garbage piles through archaeological history, the size and diversity of species in there, particularly birds and fish, because those were two big suppliers of food in Hawaii. And so they found that, that after humans, in this case Polynesians, arrived in the Hawaiian Islands, they started to drive some species extinct and to drive down the populations of other species. And that as that culture settled in and then by mechanisms unknown uh, became isolated there for centuries, they figured it out. They learned how to sustain their population by sustaining their environment. So it is a fascinating piece of history that indicates, I mean, you always hear people saying like, well, it's human nature that drives us to drive species extinct or to destroy the environment. That's just not the case. I mean, what it is, is the crisis is driven by specific forms of human culture. And human culture has taken other forms that have had the opposite effect, where not only are people not driving down, not degrading the natural world, but they're actually, in some cases, improving its productivity through, through human intelligence. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. J.B. McKinnon's book, The Once and Future World, influenced my view of nature as much as anyone's. I thought I knew what nature was, what we were trying to conserve or preserve, but I wasn't even close. I found his writing gripping and colorful. I'll link to a couple of recordings I made that quoted his book at length. He and I got in touch. We've been talking about our work, his new book that he's nearly finished, my book that I've just started, and how he was thinking in this conversation we were just having, how he was thinking about acting on his research personally, and he was sharing so personally about the challenge he was considering for himself. Impromptu, I just asked, would you consider recording a podcast right here, right now? We just jumped into it. Here are both of us, unrehearsed, unprepared, talking about what we both deeply care about. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with JB McKinnon. JB, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And it's funny because we were just talking and the conversation got to be so much about what this podcast is about and personal and interesting. And I was like, want to start recording? You said yes. So I'm going to start with what brought me to finding you. I think I connected with you first. And I don't remember how I came across your book, The Once and Future World, but it made a huge impression on me because I knew that I liked, that I missed the, the world that I grew up in. People who saw my third TEDx talks see me talking about my, the sledding hill down at the end of the block where I grew up. And not only is the road between my, with the house I grew up in and that sledding hill widened and therefore it's further away, but you barely get the snow anymore. And I don't remember the last time I saw Flexible Flyer on sale if I wanted to go sledding. <laughs> and then your book, it started to talk about nature, like what was nature like before humans? And that's not such an easy question, but here's what I remember off the top of my head. People today will go up to Maine in the hopes of seeing a whale. And you talked about, I think, captain's logs from maybe before steam of whales as far as the eye could see all day long. And boats across the Atlantic would be sailboats, would be stopped in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight anywhere because the density of fish in the water was so great that it stopped the sailboats from moving. 
that there were walruses in the Thames River, that whatever we think of as wildlife in Africa, of the big animals there, of elephants and giraffes and hippos, North America had significantly more before humans got here. And not Europeans, but the ones that through the Bering Strait. And there's also wonderment. You said a city disappeared because of you seeing what was there before. And this view just totally caught me off guard of, of the wonder of nature. And it changed from conserving what we have, which I still hope to do, to restoring what we used to have and before. And my idea of nature just expanded tremendously. And so now, like when I was staying at my mom's house, she lives out in the country and I think, oh, look at all this with nature. And now I walk through and think of what there used to be. I'm sorry for going on. <laughs> uh, you're like, when do I start talking? Hey, <laughs> you can keep on going. I went through the same process really at the outset of that book. I mean, that's really what drove me to write the book was, was going through the process you're describing of, of uh, having these experiences that opened my eyes to the fact that landscapes that I grew up with thinking were wild landscapes, when I learned the history of them, were missing many of their biggest players and their most, you know, the most dramatic species that I might have seen there even in the fairly recent past. And, and that, that became a journey to explore that issue around the world. And it, it almost read, like, it read kind of like investigative journalism of finding out what was there. Because it's not like you can't just look and see. How did you find all this stuff out? Really was the kind of thing that you describe. I mean, it was, it was really pleasurable in a lot of ways because it was fun to go back and, and read these old journals, a lot of old mariner's logs and, and the first writing by the first, in some cases, humans to, to set foot on a landscape like the Galapagos Islands that certainly haven't had a permanent occupation by humans for a long time, or just the first traveler to, to see a landscape with, with a traveler's eyes in places like uh, North America or Africa or Australia. So that, you know, there was a real pleasure in that. It was kind of like watching the world come to life in front of my eyes as I read these things. At the same time, of course, at one point in the book, I describe it as feeling a bit like stacking skulls in a, in a crypt because you're just revealing loss upon loss upon loss, much more, much more loss than, than I'd been aware of up to that point in the natural world. And, uh, and obviously, that's tough stuff to, to wade through as well emotionally. I was thinking like how you felt writing it and how you felt when people read it. What were you hoping? Did you have a goal for what you wanted people to get out of it? Well, my hope was that people would look at the natural world around them after reading the book and say, there's a lot missing here. And so, you know, if you know how the world was, then it gives you a sense of what the world can be. And so that's what I was hoping. I, I was hoping that people would not uh, put down the book and curl up a ball in a ball and, and weep, or if they did, you know, that they would do that for an hour or two and then, and then turn their imaginations to the question of what will we make of nature in the future once we know this information about the past. And that takes us you know, to what you were describing, the idea of not just conserving nature, but, but restoring it and, and bringing it back and, and this concept of rewilding. Yeah, I was, was going to say that made me think of rewilding. Are you involved with things like that? Are, do, you, do you view your job as reporting? Is it motivating? Are you 
trying to get things started or just kind of hoping someone else will pick up or? Yeah, I, I'm not really a practicing rewilder. I mean, my first book with my partner, Elisa Smith, The 100 Mile Diet was similar in that, um, well, in, in the US, it was titled Plenty. That book was similar in that we we did this personal experiment in in eating only food and drink produced within a 100 mile radius of our home in Vancouver for a year. And uh, I mean, we live that way. That book uh, came out well over a decade ago now. We continue to eat that way and live that way. But I didn't become a local food activist or those sorts of things. Um, you know, I hope that the book would inspire people who were local food activists. And, and I, I think it did uh, to a meaningful degree. And the same was true of the once and future world. I, I don't spend my weekends on rewilding projects, <laughs> but I, I hope that that the book inspired people to do that if that's where they felt they wanted to connect to that set of ideas. Do you know of any examples of rewilding? Because I've heard the term a lot and I see like um, George, was it Monbiot? I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, I think it's Monbiot, yeah. He talks about it a lot. And, but I don't actually know, do I know of any rewilding projects? Because I know of parks, this like, you know, Tim Smith of the Eden Project, but that's not rewilding at all. That's, I love it, the, the Eden Project. Mm-hmm. I would love to go to a rewilded place. I mean, rewilding is can be as simple as uh, a person deciding to leave ten percent of their backyard ungroomed. You know, not raking up the leaves, not trimming the bushes. Rewilding can be as simple as that. Or, or the people all over North America who are growing milkweed so that monarch butterflies have food to eat during their these incredible migrations they make. All of those sorts of things are rewilding projects, but there are there are much larger ones as well, like the Yellowstone to Yukon Parks Corridor or Conservation Corridor concept, which would, in theory, provide a kind of pa- safe passage for creatures of all s- different sizes to to cross the continent north to south. There are huge rewilding projects, and there are very small ones out there, and and they're all really important. I mean, when we talk about conservation. The most ambitious proposals that are on the table right now would would protect, you know, perhaps twenty percent of the world, land and sea. I mean, that leaves eighty percent of the world to human uses. You know, we really need to be thinking. We do. We certainly need to be doing all the conservation we can do, but we need really need to be thinking also about what is the natural world going to look like in the spaces that are that we assign to to human use and to to domination by our species. I mean, who are we going to cohabit with? What species are we going to live with? What kind of landscape are we going to create? Will we create a landscape that we share with other species or will we create a landscape that we, that we keep exclusively to ourselves? I I'm kind of want to pursue that, but I also want to go back to the 100-mile diet also because food listeners of this podcast know that my biggest shift probably came from when I challenged myself to go for a week buying no packaged food. and. I think last time we spoke, you said, it sounds like a constraint, but in my experience, eating less packaged food has actually drastically increased the variety of what I eat. And I think you said, you don't do it because you're trying to, why do you keep it up? Is it, is it because you're trying to change the world or? No, I mean, well, certainly that's not first and foremost. I mean, and, that, and that's an interesting point because people do come to, to me and to my partner and say, why are you still eating like this? Uh, you made the point a long time ago, and I generally reply that you couldn't make me stop eating a, a, a primarily local foods diet. It's 
the food quality is so much better. I feel like I'm getting far better nutrition from eating that way. I have these the satisfaction of the re- having relationships with the people that grow my food, and I feel tied in even to the landscape and the the climate and the the weather. You know, is it is this spring too wet to to produce good berries? You know, the, these are important questions to me because of the way I eat and. I love all of that engagement with the food I eat and and so I wouldn't change it. You know, I wouldn't you couldn't pay me to change the way I eat. Yeah, I'm looking over at these peaches. I was oh my god. <laughs> Another big benefit is these ones I got cuz I was walking with my friend to pick up her CSA. And when we got there, she picked up her stuff and as she was leaving they said, "By the way, she has just a vegetable share." So she just picks up her vegetables. And they said, "You know, for some reason, a lot of people didn't pick up their fruit. We got a tons of extra fruit. Do you want one? She goes, of course. I said to her, do you mind if I ask? And I was like, can someone who's not a member of the C- I'm a member of a different CSA? And they're like, yeah, yeah, take one. And this keeps happening. When you know the people, in this case, I don't know them, but she does. But I know my farmers. I always go to the same, not always, but I usually go to the same vendors at the farmer's market. And one of my big things is people buy beets and they clip off the beet greens and put that in a box to take back to the farm for composting. So I get tons of beet greens and carrot greens and radish greens and turnip greens free. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I buy something, so I'm not just like completely getting free stuff, but they're actually looking at it like, good, less for me to take home or take back to the farm. It's, I'm saving them labor. And part of me thinks, well, that doesn't scale. But then I think if we live in a world where so many people are eating the beet greens, that's like nice. That's not a problem. And I think also the farmers at some point, I'm thinking about going to the farmer and saying, just charge people a dollar a pound for this stuff. And, you know, charge me if you want. But maybe you can, you know, grandfather me in as the guy who gave you the idea. But <laughs> people might buy it and you'll make a little more money. And I'm sure they're thinking about it anyway. Funnily enough, beet greens are maybe my favorite vegetable, but uh, I would certainly pay a dollar a pound for them. Well, and what you were saying earlier about diversity as well, there's a farm not too far from where we live that uh, they grow about 300 varieties of tomato. And I mean, that's more types of tomato than there are varieties of vegetable in, in, at the supermarket, right? Even at the mm-hmm. largest supermarket. So yeah, the, the idea that, um, that eating you know, primarily local foods diet is boring or repetitive or lacks diversity is farcical. I mean, it, it's, it's radically more diverse diet and yeah. changes you know, not only with the seasons, but with the micro seasons and the micro micro seasons and it's constantly changing. The perceptions that people have around these things are so wrong-headed that I have to suspect either, you know, willful willful ignorance when I'm in a bad mood. Uh, when I'm in a good mood, I think people just get bad information, and and there's a lot of money invested in making sure that they do. My favorite cuisines are Thai and Mexican, mm-hmm. and I used to think I must live in one of the best times ever because I'm in New York City. I can whatever cuisine I can go out and it's like within a couple blocks. But what it actually ends up as is Mexican food is stuff and it's slathered with cheese, melted cheese on it. And the Thai is slathered with uh, coconut milk and a lot of fruit juice. So it's really sweet. Mm. And everything's salt, sugar, fat. So actually, Michael Morris is going to be on my podcast soon too. I don't know if you've read Salt, Sugar, Fat, <laughs> but it's not variety. It looks like variety from the outside because one in Thai food, I guess the white, it's white rice and in in Mexican, it's yellow rice. But the actual pleasure is coming from added salt, sugar, and fat. Whereas I used to, I mean, it used to be that 
I didn't know what to get at a farmer's market. I would walk through with my sister because she, she'd show me around and I'd just buy like a loaf of bread and some cheese. And I'd think, oh, look at me. I got some farmer's stuff. But now it's like, I can't wait to see what they have this week that they didn't last week that I haven't had in 10 months. But the big thing is that apples used to be what I would call the boring fruit. That's the usual one. You know, cherry or apple, cherry, uh, mango or apple, mango. You know, always, I'd always choose something else. And now it's, I can't believe how much variety there is. It's amazing how much one apple will taste different than another, even in the same box, as you were saying, these microclimates, like different place on the branch, I guess. I don't know. And I don't know if listeners remember if I said this too much on other episodes, but like I used to love Ben and Jerry's, but now it's sickeningly sweet. It's like cloying. It's like, I, I mean, I don't have dairy anyway, but you couldn't pay me enough to eat it. And an apple has so much more sweetness, but nuance and complexity. And that's just the boring fruit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I 100% agree. And then when I go to, when I was up at my mom's house for the beginning of COVID and we go to the supermarket and there's like all the eggplants are giant eggplants that they're the same 12 months out of the year. And before we started recording, and I think we're going to talk about this again in a second, I'm going to switch if it's okay with you to what we were talking about that really got us started, which was the, the challenge. Okay. Oh, no, wait, I have to ask you, I know you're working on something else and I know it's under wraps, <laughs> but can you share what you're working on to some degree? Yeah, I'm working, I'm working on another book that's going to come out in May 2021. And it's looking at what society might look like and how it might function if we consumed less. So that big question of can we run the world <laughs> as we know it or in any way remotely like the way we know it and consume less goods, services, products, etc. Oh, when you said goods and services, so, because I was thinking just material consumption, but it's also, have I hit what it's under wraps? The look <laughs> on his face, it's, all, it's only audio, but he was like, it, it had this look of like, too much detail. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, let's just say, uh, if you pull on the thread of consumption, then, then it runs a long, long ways. So it starts to take in virtually everything we do. Oh man, I hope I get a, now I can't wait. I hope I get a review copy. <laughs> oh, I'll make sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reading also into what you're saying and, and stop me if I'm asking too much, but that did it become as personal experience that I imagine it's going to affect you? You're, you consume. <laughs> I do. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of these books are in a sense, me trying to answer questions for myself first and foremost. Uh, you know, one was how do I eat? You know, how do I want to eat as a person who, the person who tries to live the analyzed life. I mean, what food will I put in my body? That became the 100-mile diet concept. Then I started thinking, well, what, what is my relationship to nature? How do I feel about how we should conserve nature? That led to the once and future world. And then probably, probably really my most long-standing discomfort is with the question of how to consume. And uh, so finally, I've gotten around to pursuing that. So someone listened to this who's thinking, yeah, I get the 100-mile diet or I get no packaging, but I still like mangoes. I want coconuts <laughs> sometimes, assuming they're living in a place where there aren't mangoes and coconuts. Is there something, have you figured out what to say to them? Yeah, I say, have, I say eat mangoes. Eat a mango, eat a coconut. Eat mangoes regularly. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, my, my position is do things thoughtfully. And if, if uh, we can't all... We can't all be eating mangoes all the time if we live in places where mangoes are not produced. I don't think that's a, it's not an environmentally 
sustainable in the truest sense approach, but it's also, I don't think the most satisfying way to live. But if you can't live without mangoes, if they are your favorite fruit and it will cause a sharp decline in your quality of life uh, to not be able to eat mangoes whatsoever and then eat mangoes, you know, that's one of the things that I was always struck with about local eating is that it's not like veganism. It's not like vegetarianism. It's not something that you're all in on or all out of. You can, you can eat 1% local. You can eat 10% local. You can eat 100% local and anything in between. You know, any increase in, in your local diet, I think, will come with a whole bunch of benefits that will, would surprise people and will lead you towards a more sustainable diet, in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that, that I rule out the use of any food or any fruit or vegetable that, that is part of the global supermarket. And the more that I do it, to some extent, it's difficult because sometimes I'll go to lunch with someone and, or someone wants to meet with me and they're like, meet for meal. And I sometimes I'm at a restaurant, and I don't eat anything. And, but then I also connect with people. I guess it's kind of like when you live by your values, you tend to connect with fewer people, but more. I don't know. Has that been your experience as well? And that, it's not that I don't connect with others, it's, but yeah. they think I'm weird, or they think I'm missing out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when you step outside of the mainstream, then you have to, you have to find your own community because otherwise it's very difficult to form and hold values in isolation. Most of us don't have the, the will to just live as aliens mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for a lifetime. So I think that's part of the process of, of if you change your values in a way that, that starts to isolate you from the, from the broader culture that you live in, then you're more likely to succeed at that and it's going to feel better and more satisfying if you can find people who, who share those values and at least give yourself that, uh, that reprieve, even if it also means that you, that you spend a lot of time interacting with people with, with quite a different value system. So have you having talked about values and your values and what led you to write the books, what led you to pursue these things, what led you to try these things out? So I invite you at your option to think of something you could do. And we kind of talked about it before, so I think you know what you, what you have in mind. Yeah, but to think of something you could do to act on those values, and I think what you kind of talked about before we started recording fits with it. But just to, a couple constraints I put on it, just to make sure, is that, and this is to help people, it makes it easier. Is it's not what I didn't ask. What's the most important thing you could do, or what is the biggest thing you could do, or what's something the New York Times tells you should do, and it may affect the world. That's not the goal. It's to act on your what you care about, what's meaningful to you. And it has to be something new that you're not already doing, something that you're not telling that you have to do yourself. So it's not telling others to do something for you. Because I have all these leaders on, and they're like, "Oh, I'll get my team to do this." But we learn from our own experience. And something physical. So because a lot of people say, "Oh, I'll read this book," or "I'll raise my awareness," but it's it has to have a physical component. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. I think the challenge that I've been thinking of is it does fit the bill because it's an unusual. It's a step outside my comfort zone. And I think that's, that's kind of, if you're not stepping aside your comfort zone, then it's not a challenge really, is it? (laughs) In my case, I've been thinking a lot about, because I've been researching and writing about consumer goods to some extent, I've really started taking an interest in this idea of the durability or lack thereof of products, planned obsolescence, all of these sorts of ideas uh, that intersect with sustainability because durable products, obviously, last longer and 
you don't need to buy them re- repeatedly. And yet I find myself resisting. I find my, I, I agree with all of the arguments around durability as, as an aspect of sustainability. But when I go to buy something, I find myself backing away because of the, the price tag. And I realize that I am you know, maybe not as hooked into this idea of lots of cheap goods as the average person, but I'm still hooked into it, even though I thought that, that I probably wasn't. I'm affected by that. And I feel really uncomfortable about the idea of spending a lot of money. <laughs> there's class stuff that goes into it. There's, there's my Finnish and Scottish thriftiness in my heritage. So that's what, that's what I think my challenge is. It's like find some consumer good that, I, that I'm going to buy and buy the really good one that costs a lot of money. And think, you know, just sit down and think about <laughs> whether it's worth it. How, you know, how does it play out for me? Is it satisfying? Can I make it satisfying? Can I wrap my head around it, really? Because right now I can't. And I sort of buy the argument that people make that, like, that's crazy. You're going to spend that much money? That's nuts. For a t-shirt or what have you, you know, <laughs> that argument works on me, even though it doesn't have any content. Yeah, you said you could buy the expensive one, but I think, what if it's durable and cheap? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that would be good, but I think it's unlikely. And I guess the other thing is that it's not only a question of durability as just, you know, the, the idea of true cost, right? Like if you buy a product with all of its real costs built into it, the cost of the carbon pollution, the cost of the, you know, the various harms that it does to landscapes, to, to the people who make it, make the product, all of those sorts of things. If you want to actually pay the true cost to get something that's high quality, durable, made by people who are making a living wage, produced in a way that's responsible to the landscape it's being produced in and to the global atmosphere, all of those things, then I, I think you're going to spend money. <laughs> Maybe I can get it. Maybe I can get really great durable thing secondhand, but I think I should actually test myself with the maximum, like something that really causes me to wince a bit in terms of the price. And uh, yeah, to see if I can make sense of it through that personal ex- experiment. So I'm, I'm reading this. You're saying if you want to do this, if you want to do that, but you're really saying if I want to do this, if I want to do that, you being I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if one wants to, and the one in this case is me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I know, I mean, the reason this is an attractive challenge for me is because I already know that it's challenging. It's difficult for me. It steps outside my comfort zone and I, and I step back from it. I have stepped back from it already. So it's something that uh, I should push through on. It doesn't seem like much of a sacrifice, but I suppose a challenge doesn't need to be. Mm, it doesn't even have to be a challenge, really. I mean, it might be something. I mean, it might end up being getting a safety razor instead of a disposal. Right. I, possible. Already did that, though. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the next thing I do in it is to say, make it a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Mm. And on the one hand, I forget if you were saying it when, when we were recording it before, but you said... I don't think you want to just buy something gratuitously. You still want to buy less things. So it might not be, is there anything that you know that you're looking to get in the near future? Because I'd be just as happy as if it, if you weren't going to make any major purchase for another 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would be too. But I mean, in this case, I think it's worth it just to, I think it's worth it for the experiment. I mean, I mean, probably, probably I'll go for a garment or a shoe or something like that because I, you know, I am going through, I'm getting to the tail end of a lot of clothes at the moment. (laughs) And probably 
I mean, as you said, this is not necessarily the best way to go about it because probably the best way would be to just go buy some used clothing, mm-hmm. which I do do. But um, in this case, as a challenge, I should maybe just track down something that's that's high quality, will last me a long time. And, and actually, it's interesting because I do buy used clothing uh, sometimes. And uh, I don't buy a lot of clothing to begin with. But I'm noticing that used clothing is becoming more disposable as well, of course, because yeah, it's secondhand bad clothing. So <laughs> I think it would be quite a different experience to buy like a, a quality garment that might last me 15 years. Like some of the other, I mean, I have, I have a, I have a fleece that I was given for Christmas in 1986 or something like that when I was basically a kid that I haven't really had that experience for a long time, right? Of acquiring something that I know is going to stay with me for a very long time because even the used goods are, are generally garbage waiting to happen. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. You reminded me that my people are always like, should I get paper or plastic? And the bag that I go to the farmer's market with to get my vegetables, mm. I think I got it in the 80s. Right. <laughs> I may have gotten it in the 90s. I've definitely had it a long, long time. And I'm like, the answer to paper or plastic is neither. Mm. And you don't need more bags. Like there are more bags, right? I bet everyone listening to this right now has more than enough bags and they'll need for their entire lifetimes. Yeah. And they still accept a new bag when it comes their way. Anyway, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. So what's a good time, amount of time that if we schedule a second conversation that you can say what that experience was like? Let's see, in the next, in the next fiscal quarter, in the, in, the next, <laughs> uh, in the next three months or so? Three months. I guess it has to be time bound. So I can't say three months or so. Yeah, I find that the more specific it gets, the, more, the easier it becomes to do. Mm-hmm. So if we scheduled, so it's September 3rd, so if we did September, October, November, so if we did something October, November, December, so if we did like early December. Oh, yeah, let's go December 3rd, yeah, three months on the nose. Okay, cool. That gives me time to have something like literally wear out and fall off my body and I can be like, oh, yeah, I should get a new one. Yeah, I'm curious. And I, I have to say that a lot of people do stuff that I'm kind of curious about, but this one I expect to learn from your experience because mm-hmm. I also, I'm very quick to get stuff at thrift shops and I'm happy to, but there are definitely things that, yeah, until you said I didn't really think about it. Yeah, I do. It's harder to get the stuff. I guess I got, I'm really happy with this winter coat I got. I did all this research on it and it's, it's like hemp. And so, and the interior is made with recycled stuff. And cause I, I was looking at like down seems to be very comfortable, but I, I don't want to get animal stuff. Right. And then when I found hemp, I was like, this is great. And I'm very happy with it. Like it's only a few years old, but it looks still new. Yeah. I think that's part of it is like what, the pleasure of, high quality goods. I mean, I have, I think that's probably why I'm leaning towards clothing too, because I do have some high quality goods. Like you said, I have a safety razor and that is a pleasure to use. And it's, it's nice to know that I'm not throwing out disposable razors anymore. Cast iron pans, you know, 
I have some things like that. My bike is very old, like, but, uh, and there's a pleasure in using those high quality things that, um, but I, I guess with clothing, I've tended to just, you know, I don't think I've owned a lot of clothing where I've thought this is really well made and look at the quality of this fabric and it's going to last a long time and it's going to hold its color. And, and will there be a, a distinct pleasure in that for me or not? I'm not sure. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed in, in thrift shops, there's a lot of H&M, there's a lot of Zara. I've right. never seen Patagonia clothing in a thrift shop. No. Probably because I know they fix it for you. Yeah. But I think it's built to last. I don't know. I've, I've, I've never gotten it because it's never on sale. I mean, at a thrift shop. And it, it's good enough stuff that probably if somebody isn't going to use it anymore, they offer it to a friend or a niece or a nephew or hand it down to their kid or, you know, things like this. I mean, I think that's how it goes with durable goods, right? You, you leave your cast iron pans to somebody in your, in your will, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we care for them more. We're more attached to them. We treat them differently throughout their life cycle. So there's, there's really something in that. I'm really curious because you, you have expectations and, but you also, I read that you expect it's going to be, whatever your expectations are, you still expect some surprise or some unknown. Oh yeah, definitely. I definitely, well, there's definitely unknowns. Yeah, there's definitely unknowns. I mean, I really do wonder whether, I expect there to be some, some delight in it, but I'm still, I'm not totally sure it's going to feel worth it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of question marks in it. Well, I guess it's possible that maybe processes have led to where the not durable stuff is still worth the price. You might be surprised. Yeah. And, and also, how will I make sure that I'm not just paying for branding? for example, mm. <laughs> you know, things like that. Like, I'm a, do I even have the consumer intelligence to buy something that's actually good? Or will I just end up spending a bunch of money that turns out to be, you know, a waste where I'm just, I'm just paying for some imaginary feature like the brand? Well, I look forward to hearing. And before wrapping up, I'm curious, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Or any message you want to give to the listeners? No, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love that it came together spontaneously. And, uh, you know, that we were mid-conversation and you said, let's just hit the record button and go. And I didn't have time to think or, or prepare and we just flowed into it. That was, that's fun. Yeah, I really like that too. So the listeners know, we were talking about your book and you were saying how you were thinking about doing that, getting something durable. And I was like, I think that this process that we just went through, maybe I'm flattering myself, <laughs> it'll accelerate the process. And it, it, I mean, when people want to do stuff, it helps to have, to have a connect with where it's coming from on the inside. And to jump in. Yeah, it really helps yeah. to just jump in. I have another question. Did you write, was it your book that talked about Hawaii being, then I have to ask you this, because he just nodded yes, uh, <laughs> the people who couldn't see the video. If, <laughs> I don't as, know what you're going to say about Hawaii, but I did write about Hawaii, so I'm going to guess that, that it was As that. I recall, the Polynesians found it and settled it and traded with it, and somehow the archaeological record shows that it was degrading, that it was, I guess, lowering its ability to sustain life. And then for some reason, perhaps unknown, the Polynesians stopped going back and forth to Hawaii. And so they're stuck there. And then the archaeological record shows that the ability to sustain life would increase. And there were rules of like, this, this bird you cannot touch. And there were like uh, draconian measures to make sure that it, that it stayed, pristine, not pristine, just livable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that made a big impression on me because it told me that we, we can change. And Although, so did I remember that right? And yeah, how, absolutely, yeah. How did the archaeological? How did they know this? Well, I mean, the specific case I read about, they're they're looking at the garbage piles through archaeological history, 
And um, the size and diversity of species in there, particularly birds and fish, because those were two big suppliers of food in Hawaii. And so they found that, yeah, that after humans, in this case, Polynesians arrived in the Hawaiian islands, they started to drive some species extinct and to drive down the populations of other species. And that uh, as, as that culture settled in, and then by, as you said, mechanisms unknown, uh, became isolated there for centuries, they figured it out. They learned how to sustain their population by sustaining their environment. So it is a fascinating piece of history that, that indicates, I mean, you always hear people saying like, well, it's human nature that drives us to, to drive species extinct or to destroy the environment. I mean, that's, it's just not, that's just not the case. I mean, what it is, is the crisis is driven by specific forms of human culture. And human culture has taken other forms that have uh, that have had the opposite effect, right? Where not only are people not driving down, not degrading the natural world, but they're actually, in some cases, improving its productivity through through human intelligence. And sometimes it's the same culture at different times through history. I mean, there, where I live in British Columbia, there are indigenous oral histories that talk about both circumstances, situations where people's values got, you know, took a wrong turn and it turned into an existential crisis for the culture. And the same culture might then recover, follow a different path and have a really sustainable relationship with its landscape for a very long period of time. So, you know, to me, those are very, they're really hopeful stories. Yeah, really. You can tell the stuff that I quote from your books to other people. We know the results that Hawaii degraded and then improved, but we don't know the mechanism. We don't know how, like, there's no record of them analyzing the number of trees or this number of species or, and then deciding what to do. We only know what happened. Is that right? Well, no. I mean, Native Hawaiians right now are trying to revive some of the practices that they use to, to sustain, their, sustain the environment and sus- or even improve the productivity of that environment. It's just that, you know, they face all of the challenges in terms of access to the landscape that, you know, that historically and traditionally was theirs, the cultural dislocation that's occurred over the last hundreds of years. They, you know, there's a lot of difficulties in, in reviving those practices, but they, they do have some sense of, of how they worked. Absolutely. Uh, And part of it, for example, was that communities were divided into parcels that ran from the height of land down to the ocean so that everybody had a piece of the high mountains and everything else in between all the way down to the ocean. So they had these complete sort of vertically integrated natural landscapes to work with. And uh, so they developed a real sense of the relationship between you know, how the, how the mountain feeds the sea, how the sea feeds the mountain. All kinds of ideas that are ecologically complex that were clearly learned through uh, trial and error, maintained through oral histories, difficult, complicated science in, a, in effect that made them very good ecologists. Well, that's wrapped up before, but I'm glad I asked about Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating place. I mean, island, island cultures around the world are... They're microcosms of ourselves, right? We're, we're living on this little island of life in, as far as we know, lifeless space. And that's the situation that, that cultures that were isolated on islands for, for many, many years 
found themselves in. And with the, the limited scale of their landscapes, they were really pressed to answer the question of, of how they would sustain themselves. And they certainly couldn't choose to degrade their landscapes at anything like the rate we're degrading ours in most of the industrialized world. And we say many, many years that they survived in isolation. Are we talking at the upper end? Is it centuries, millennia? Centuries, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think some of these practices would certainly go back millennia. I mean, the Polynesians were living in various islands. There's other places where, for example, on the coast of British Columbia, every inch of the landscape had a culture on it. So each culture had, you know, they were, each culture had control over a relatively small territory and were limited in that territory by the fact that they had neighbors. So they had to work with what they had and to some extent trade with their neighbors, but they certainly couldn't, they certainly couldn't and wouldn't rationally choose to degrade their own landscapes at that scale in the kind of way that we do with our attitude of a, of a global market. So stop me if I'm keeping you from your next thing, because we didn't, <laughs> the planning is kind of so, so impromptu. But what about all the, the large animals that went extinct when the humans showed up? I mean, that seems like it degraded the environment. It definitely did, yeah. And I mean, there's debate over whether or not that's, you know, whether or not humans were the, the most instrumental in that. But I mean, I, I guess having looked at the evidence myself, I, I feel that whether it was climate or human influence, humans played a role. I mean, even if I think humans played a decisive role, whether they were the primary or the secondary or the tertiary influence. But in those cases, we're talking about people who were in a sense dislocated. They had come brand new to a new landscape. And it, it must have looked to them like, like, like a pool of resources that could never be exhausted, which of course is a, an idea that's been repeated throughout human history. And uh, mistakes were made. <laughs> <laughs> what the difference is, is that you know, in many of those places, cultures went on to go through a process of extended cultural learning on their landscapes and changed their practices. We haven't had that, that kind of learning at a global scale so far. Well, I could keep asking questions forever, but I'm going to wrap it up here if that's okay with you. Sure. Well, J.B. McKinnon, thank you very much. My pleasure. Hope to talk again. Me too. After reading his book and the impression that it made on me, I loved getting to learn the backgrounds of wildlife, Hawaii, all the things I read from Once in Future World, and how and why he found out about them, what motivated him. I hope that you are all also on your path to discover variety in food, in clothing, in community, in durability, and so on, that our culture obscures and makes us feel backward about. We think that these things are weird or wrong or missing out. Partly I'm impressed on myself, by the way, at remembering those parts of his book unaided. But really, that recall illustrates, not my recall, but the power of the book and, sadly, what we are doing and what we have done to our world. But hopefully, what we can also restore. I'm always impressed, I hope you are too, with how fast nature rewilds when we take our foot off the gas. And how much when we do that, that how much we enjoy the surprising, sadly surprising discovery of simple, sustainable living. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, 
That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.